Welcome to This Podcast is Not for Profit. Our sector is full of big hearts, tiny budgets, and audacious goals. Join us as we explore the forces shaping the nonprofit sector, speak to experts and innovators, and share stories from the front lines of the fight to end hunger, poverty, and create more inclusive communities. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, died after Minneapolis police officers restrained him by kneeling on his neck during an arrest for allegedly using a counterfeit bill. While people have been fighting for civil rights for generations, Floyd's death stoked the revolution with unprecedented protests and uprisings around the world. In July 2020, the New York Times reported that as many as 26 million people in the United States alone had participated in Black Lives Matter demonstrations in the weeks following the incident. According to scholars and crowd-counting experts, those protests represent the largest movement in the country's history. Structural racism is not an exclusively American issue. In Canada, the shooting deaths of Ejaz Chaudhry and Chantelle Moore in recent months are just two of the many examples that make it impossible to deny these problems are very much our own. The call to end systemic racism remains at the forefront in media headlines and in our hearts and in our minds. As an organization, while we fight for equity and equal opportunities for all in our community, we know that in order to really do the work, we must also acknowledge and situate ourselves in the systemic and institutional racism that persists in Canada. The past few months have been a time of calling in for us, listening to the voices of black activists and community, sitting in the discomfort of difficult conversations, and examining how we can and will do better. In this series, we hear from local activists and experts who share their insight on allyship through both an individual and organizational lens, how the nonprofit sector can adapt in order to better support racialized communities, and the mental health impacts of racism. I hope you enjoy, and I hope that you are able to learn as much as we did from these conversations. I'm here with Nabil Rahman, Community Development Specialist with the Town of Oakville. He is also a registered social worker and has a counseling practice um, with experience working with visible minorities, persons of color, and marginalized at-risk populations who live in the intersection of multiple barriers. He also offers other workshops and professional development services for community organizations. Nabil recently launched his own podcast, Positive Thoughts Podcast, and is a TEDx speaker. Uh, This conversation is going to focus on the mental health uh, impacts of racism and discrimination, as well as the many barriers that racialized individuals face uh, uh, speaking to the Halton community and more broadly to the GTHA. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate the the warm welcome and I look forward to the discourse and the conversation we're going to have today. Yes. So you, you share a lot about your personal experiences arriving in Canada as a newcomer from Saudi Arabia in 1993 and what life was like for your family. Uh, In your TED talk, you mention how your father's first job was an assistant manager at a Burger King and how he was greatly overqualified for that position. We know this is a common occurrence for many newcomers. Let's start by talking a little bit about the barriers that racialized individuals face and how that impacts their mental health. Yeah, totally. Um, just a, just a point of correction. I came to Canada in 1997. Uh, in the so. TED Talk in 1993, that's when the idea was initially, uh, you know, sort of uh, implanted into my parents and myself of, of the possibility of moving to uh, to a new place. Um, but uh, but to your to your question, Mike, in regards to um, you know just the mental health challenges of just newcomers and and, and what the impact of, of racism. Uh, and then just systemic institutional barriers. Um, to give you an overview from my, my father, he worked at the assist, he was an assistant manager in Burger King. Uh, he didn't necessarily have like any restaurant background experience, right? Like that was just the opportunity that was available to him. Um, yeah. So if we were all to put ourselves in, in the position or in my dad's situation, um, so Mike, before we, we started the podcast, you were talking to me about you have a PhD. You might ask what uh, you did your PhD in? Uh, I did it in English and Cultural Studies. 
with a focus Perfect. on sustainable food systems. Yep. Amazing. Amazing. And so if I were to say, well, Mike, you will now have a job as a mechanic where mm -hmm. the skills that you might have learned uh, as to, you know, through your PhD and the things that you might have been passionate about, it's hard for you to transfer any of that skill over to a new profession. And, and so the profession doesn't necessarily even meet the expectation of what you yourself saw. Um, it kind of has an impact on how you see yourself. Right. And uh, yeah. And, and, and it's no different for, for immigrants. When you hear those stories and those narratives of, of individuals who are coming here uh, and having to work jobs for which they're overqualified, where their skill sets don't necessarily match the job responsibilities. I mean, it's the very same challenge of the ability to how do you define yourself through the work that you do? Um, and then when you're not able to do that, well, what do you have around you? What do you have within you to define yourself, to ground yourself? And so my father's experience was that he was working at a very busy Burger King. It was um, it was by Bloor and Young, and uh, and you know it was open till like late hours of the night. Uh, you would get all sorts of vulnerable communities and, and individuals coming through that space, and and with their own sets of challenges and barriers. Um, and my dad would have to navigate how to support them as their customers, but at the same time how to maintain his own mental health. Um, so in the first year that he worked there, and, and this is not an exaggeration, he lost 40 pounds. Wow. And uh, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't and think so, that would happen working at a Burger King. <laughs> right, it, exactly. Um, but it just speaks to how even the, the stresses of, you know, your, yeah. your mental health impacts your physical health. Um, and he actually had to, um, he had to resign from that position because of, because of health reasons, right? And so, yeah. um, you know, that's a very personal story to, to me. Um, but but for me, that ex the immigrant experience, the experience of, you know, migrating to Canada and the impact that it has on your mental health is that oftentimes that's very rarely talked about, right? Because you're trying so hard to settle in, uh, provide for your family if you have a family, um, and also fit a narrative of what a good immigrant is from what society expects of you. So my dad had very little say in how he got integrated into Canada, what kind of jobs he got, and how he chose to be defined, right? And when other people define you, when society's expectation of what you should be supersedes who you actually are, I think it starts to impact a person's wellness and their mental health. Um, and, and, and if they don't know where to seek that right type of support, it kind of stays with them and it builds, right? And that mental health, that continue challenges that continue to build eventually impacts like the social system, the family system, and then you see the challenges that you see around us today where, you know, racialized minorities are in low-income neighborhoods more so than in high-income neighborhoods, that they're coming into mm -hmm. contact disproportionately with the criminal justice system um, than they should be. And so those challenges are, are sort of, you know, they are the consequence of an individual mental health and the stressors that the world or the environment around them puts on them, and they don't have the ability or the support system or even the resources to meet it. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, um, my family and I came uh, to Canada in, in 1984, uh, fleeing the Soviet Union. And, uh, and when my family came, very similar experience. My mom was trained as a physiotherapist uh, mm -hmm. in the Ukraine, and she had a job as a physiotherapist. And when she came here, that meant absolutely nothing. Uh, she couldn't get right. a job as that. She had to work, you know, she was working cleaning jobs and, and, you know, huge language barrier. And, you know, you're trying to bring your kids here and sort of give them a new, a sort of a new chance, but, you know, don't understand the language, don't know how to connect, um, you know, with the community, um, all these things. And then the incredible pressure, I think often that is put on the kids to sort of uh, succeed at all costs. Right. Uh -huh. And to sort of, you know, around sort of um you know your parents came here and sacrificed this for you and so you are you know you have to sort of go and i i'm wondering if you know you do you work with a lot of youth and 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 that immigrant experience as you said you know do you see that play out in those kinds of expectations in the way that maybe the stress levels are already so much higher because of these identity issues you're talking about about self-worth and those stories we tell about ourselves yeah i think you you really bring up a good the good point right and i'm sure you know mike growing up maybe there were some of those expectations that you felt a little bit of pressure to conform to i know i certainly mm -hmm. did um mm -hmm. where just you know in, in in my in my major research paper when i was doing my master's um we, i had uh, i had interviewed immigrant youth and, and talked to them about how the support services the community support services that are available to them how can it truly impact them um mm -hmm. to make you know to make their lives better 
Um, and, and one of the most profound findings from that was just how they said that, you know, while the supports that are available for youth uh, are great, you know, they don't take into consideration the experiences of their parents. So, yeah. you know, a, a youth can have a wraparound support, but then they go home and they see their mom, you know, working jobs for which their skill sets are completely overqualified and struggling with their mental health. And so it's it's hard for them to witness that, right? And and that stays with the you know, a young person, like a 13-year-old. Um, and so that pressure now to to validate their parents' struggle, right? Like, the, the, I think there's a narrative, at least for myself, like, where I, I feel like I have to validate all that struggle for my dad. Like, my dad lost 40 yeah. pounds in a, in, a, in a year. Like, that can't be for nothing, right? And so I'm trying to fix the system through making sure that I am successful, um, mm-hmm. But it's on it's on my father's back, right? It's on the hardships that he had to endure. Um, so I'm making I'm trying to make it worthwhile for them. And it's sort of this like I often wonder if that actually if that's a narrative that is systemic in nature, or whether that's mm-hmm. something that um, that I should try to fight, right? Like I'm like my dad's experience cannot simply just be so that I'm successful. My dad's experience yes. should include his own success. That's right. right. Yeah, no, um, for sure. What I remember my parents talking about it that way, where they sort of outright said, we are not concerned with our success. Like we, uh-huh. we want, we're here. We knew that we would, we wouldn't have the same careers and, and lives that we did, that we, like, we came here just to make sure that you have that. And, you know, luckily they have, and I, and, you know, I think this maybe plays out in the difference of say a racialized immigration story versus, you know, I had a lot of doors open to me because I'm white and, and, you know, I, 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 I moved to a very, um, a very racist community in Winnipeg where very high proportion of indigenous, uh, mm-hmm. of, of urban indigenous population. And I remember from a very early age seeing sort of very intense kind of racist um, attitudes amongst the kids, around the families, around around all these different pieces, and then mapped on to the immigrant experience as well, sort of saying, well, if if we can make it, why can't they? And that the, the kind of blaming and guilt and sort of, uh, you know, this, this incredible sort of cycle of victimization that happens um, uh, mapped on to these very di- different stories and pathway, paths that are opened up for different uh, groups. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the coffin there, right? Like the idea... Sometimes we superimpose our own experiences to other communities, not completely understanding the unique challenges that each community experienced, right? So it's almost like mm-hmm. we, you know, newcomer communities, visible minorities, the indigenous community, uh, the black community, you know, they they face multiple layers of barriers. Um, and to, to use my lens of my immigrant experience and project that onto the indigenous experience and the expectation that, well, if I succeeded, why aren't they, like, I think like those are systemic questions, right? Those are questions yeah. that perpetuate the systemic discrimination that is continuously experienced, right? Rather than asking, you know, if I found success, why can't they? You know, we should be yes. asking, what can we do collectively? What can we do in solidarity so that people don't have to experience the marginalization, right? Like one of the things I would like to share is that throughout my experience of, you know, facing those systemic barriers, you know, I'm still a man. Like there's still a privilege that comes with being a man. Yeah. And, and I'm like, sometimes we don't have to let go of the privilege, but we have to use the privilege as a platform yes. to advocate for other people. Um, and I think that's the narrative that can break the systemic institutional barriers that communities are facing and in particular racialized indigenous communities. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think it's that sort of I think a lot of people in privileged positions are struggling right now with the kind of, you know, difficult conversations that are coming up. And I think it's just, you know, there, there, it, you don't need to in that way. I feel like we can sort of, as you pointed out with that sort of, you know, facing the kind of structural components of this. I mean, these are racist structures, right? Mm-hmm. And and of course, there are racist individuals, but we have to look at how people are embedded in these pieces. You know, you mentioned that racialized youth face many barriers, and you actually run a workshop on parenting immigrant youth. Uh, yes. In the introductory uh, video for that, that workshop, you share the statistic that immigrant youth are more likely to attend post-secondary education than native-born, native-born Canadian youth. What does this tell us about the lived experience of immigrant youth how does this impact their mental well-being and and can you tell me a little bit about about what you what you talk about in this in this workshop yeah yeah so you know the workshop is really geared towards helping uh parents who might have grown up in a culture different than what their children are growing up in to just understand that that your children's experience is unique and it's something while you want to support you might not necessarily have 
um, the experience in because it's also new for you and it's also new for them. Um, but the statistic that you brought up, right, the idea that newcomer youth or immigrant youth are more likely to attend post-secondary education than native-born Canadians, but they're also more likely to come into contact with the criminal justice system um, than native-born Canadians. And I think the one thing that points out to is the experiences of immigrant youth are are not uh, they're not homogenous, right? They're diverse. Um, yeah. And and I think that also speaks to they're diverse because of potentially the supports that have been made available to them and the resources that are made available to them that might determine whether the immigrant youth is going to post-secondary education or whether they're coming into contact with the criminal justice system. And actually, there are a few theories that that sort of identify that the experience of an immigrant youth um, is sort of clouded in this perception that they are they are perceived as the other to begin with, right? So yeah. um, when they come into a community, and, and think of young persons, the, the, the transition that an adolescence has to adulthood, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's drenched and, and entrenched in, in transition, the transition of their bodies, the transition of their interests, the transition of their identities. Um, and so if you have the superimposed perception of what you should be, um, then, you know, it, what ends up happening is that you either conform to that expectation that society has of you, in which case you assimilate, you forget all of your culture, and you have those intercultural conflicts with your parents, um, yeah. or you resist the dominant culture, uh, and then you seek counterculture potentially, right, where your experience, which is clouded in marginalization, and then your parents' experience, which is clouded in marginalization and oppression and discrimination and a lack of opportunities, like you internalize that experience, and then you can see that maybe there's not a space for me in the status quo, right? Maybe counterculture is my only pathway to to success, right? And that's what the strain model essentially, you know, uh, you know, advocates or not advocates for, but the strain model essentially uh, posits is that you know when legitimate oppor- oppor- avenues for success is blocked, then people will seek alternatives. Um, and so the immigrant youth experience, you know, has this 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 opportunity where you can really provide for them the right type of support where they're going to post-secondary education where they're you know helping them realize their true potential but if the supports are lacking if the understanding of their own experiences are lacking then there's a very real possibility that they come into more contact with the criminal justice system so this is all to say that we as you know allies you know as 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 organizations as municipalities have such a critical role to play in combating those systemic issues, right, uh, and supporting a young person through their journey so that we make the statistic that they're more likely to attend post-secondary education much more of a true statistic than those individuals who are coming into contact with the criminal justice system, right? There's nothing inherently that they're doing that's making them come into contact with the criminal justice system. It's the limited opportunities that society sometimes presents them with. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and I, you know, I think that sort of... Um, differentiation around support and the sort of what 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 that can do to the path of individuals i certainly know in my household you know that narrative of education is your path to success it was just so drummed into us right that sort of idea again that we came here to support you and you owe it to yourself and and to us to sort of go down this it was certainly something that was um uh you know but then you know i had some of the supports around that and and as you were saying not everybody has those supports and so i think it's really important the work that you're doing around these kinds of parenting workshops that focus in on how do you do that because it also does as you pointed out it begins to make to differentiate between the kind of cultural uh context of the parents and of their kids and that Mm -hmm. that can be a a big source of stress as well too as you as you feel yourself drifting away from from that context yeah totally um i mean i just just to speak to my experience right like i I was i was born in in saudi arabia uh where i lived for 12 years before coming to canada but i'm not what i would say is ethnically uh from saudi arabia my my dad is actually from uh, bangladesh and my mom is from Mm -hmm. india um, so, you know, in, in, in Saudi Arabia, unless you're an ethnic Saudi, you know, you, you're, you're generally treated in, in, in not the same manner as you would if you were a citizen there, right? So there is that segregation of experiences. So in my experience as an immigrant, quote unquote, in Saudi Arabia, and then in my experience as an immigrant in, in Canada, one of the things that I've realized is that no matter where I go, I'm always not from that place, 
right? Yeah. So, so in Saudi Arabia, I was from Bangladesh. And in Canada, where I've lived for like, you know, 22 years of my life, um, I'm also like my, you know, you wouldn't think of me as what you, when you see a Canadian, you, would, you know, just like, where are you really from? And then when I go to Bangladesh, the moment they hear me speak, they're like, where are you from? Uh, you know, where are you really from, right? So, so this question of identity, like it's, it's a huge concept to, like it's something that I grapple with today, right? Like, do I have to be one or the other? Or am, is my, my identity intersectional? Is it all of them? Um, but for a young person, like that's way too much to navigate yeah. because they have so much other things to deal with, right? The ex- like you have the expectation of your, your parents and you have the, the ability to validate their struggle, right? And, and oftentimes, you know, even in, in, in cultures and families where English is not their first language, you often see children and teenagers be like the translator for their parents, right? And, and think about if you're going to a doctor's appointment and it's about something serious with your mom and yeah. you have to be the translator. Like think of what that impact has on a child, right? It's huge and and, and it happens and it happens a lot. Um, and I think those type of stories and narratives are just not shared enough to the point where like the greater community can sort of empathize with that with that young person and, and then provide them with the resources to, to cope with their mental health and also to to give them the opportunity to succeed. And you know, the statistic about, you know, newcomer youth attending post-secondary education, right? That's just an example. It doesn't have to be post-secondary education. It can be the skilled trades. It could be anything in, you know, where the young person finds uh, where they want to be in life, right? And so if you're if they're if they're experiencing these challenges, then I think it's about us as a society to be able to provide them with the resources to support them through it. Yeah, it's really, and I think, you know, what strikes me about that is I think, you know, about, because with, you know, with, I I came when I was quite young, so I was about four years old. So, you know, I picked up the language and don't have an accent, right? And I'm white and can pass. And so I don't get that same question. Where are you really from? You Mm. know, my parents still do a little bit because they have an accent, um, but you know, it's, it's that privilege of passing as the kind of quote unquote Canadian normal that I think is, um, that really sort of, um, is so important when thinking about that youth experience, right. And how they have to navigate all these pieces and that idea of having those extra, extra layers, um, and what that would do. And so I think you, you talk a lot about in your work and, in, uh, you know, you work a lot on racial discrimination and, and, and think about sort of stress levels. I'm wondering if you can talk ab- ab- about what it looks like for people of color and what coping supports you suggest maybe for individuals who might be feeling the weight of this stress of that kind of, you know, individual, like what it does to our bodies, to our mental health, to have these stru- these structural racist systems sort of impinge on us. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a loaded question, but I think it's a very, um, it's a very valid question to ask. Um, you know, systemic discrimination are external triggers that a person experiences that either will limit the resources they have to potentially address an issue that they're experiencing or cause the issue that they're experiencing, right? And so if you think of the experience of a racialized individual, whether that be in the margins of their uh, education, their experience, the color of their skin, their ethnicity, their identity, their orientation, um, all these things are, are unique to that individual. Um, but if society prevents a person to to sort of seek means to find that success, then it sort of impacts their mental health, right? And so the just we've been talking about immigrant youth. So think about what it feels like to validate your parents' experience of seeing them struggle, right? Like seeing your parents struggle can be traumatizing. But if you are not addressing the trauma that you've experienced and you're trying to just validate their struggle by really pushing yourself through uh, you know the channels you have available to you, well, guess what? There's still trauma that needs to be, you know, processed, right? And and sometimes people are at the age of like 40, they're mid, you know, they're in their mid 40s, they're starting to realize that this is really like, you know, part of me is still that young person who saw their parents yeah. struggle, and I've never processed that. Um, and and you know, when systemic barriers is that you're in your mid 40s and you have no access to the resources that can help you solve it. That's the systemic barrier that you're experiencing, right? Whether that's the cost to seek counseling, whether that's the stigma to seek counseling, um, and whether that's what modality of counseling is gonna be made available to you to be able to uh, support you through that, right? Like this Western notion 
of uh, counseling? Is this the only way that a person of color can potentially benefit from? Are there other modalities of, of counseling or therapy or support systems that are made available, right? And, and, and the reality is that a lot of the support systems that we sort of seek out have a very Western notion of, of support, which maybe a person of color from a community that they're coming from might not necessarily be able to relate to. So even though yeah. a therapist might have really good intentions, there's a disconnect between the support that's available versus the need of the individual, right? Um, and and then what happens to that in one individual, right? They It stays with them, that trauma stays with them, and then the anxiety increases. Right. And then they don't know where this anxiety is coming from because they haven't been able to process what might have happened to them in childhood. Um, and then because of the anxiety, because of the trauma, right, there's a lack of, you know, feelings of hopelessness. People might, you know, fall into depression. Um, and, and and then it's a cycle that doesn't really have an opportunity to to end itself. Right. It's just it's perpetual. Um, and when things feel perpetual, that's when a person's you know lived experiences really begins to get impacted right that's when your anxiety your trauma your depression really starts to impact your day-to-day life um what i would speak to that is is the idea that you know support is not uh it's heterogeneous right you can't just have one layer of support to fix everything in your life right we're all experiencing what happens when uh covid shuts down you know, going out to a restaurant, going to a community center uh, for a fitness class, going and playing uh, basketball or soccer or going to an arts class. Um, you know, those, you know, those programs have, you know, the tertiary benefit of a person's mental well-being, right? You are engaging with individuals, yeah. you're connecting with people, you're building a sense of community. And so, you know, a person's mental health is no different, right? So when a person's experiencing a level of distress, what is needed for that individual is to understand that that distress is really a form of anxiety that they're experiencing, right? That anxiety can be in the form of confusion, that anxiety can be in the form of feeling overwhelmed, that anxiety can sometimes be in the form of like panic attacks, right? But the idea is that there needs to be a channeling of that anxiety and then utilizing that anxiety into something much more uh, positive, right? So working out physical activity is one of the things that's really recommended for anybody who experiences, you know, any kind of emotional distress, because by doing physical activity, you're taking this anxiety that you're experiencing in your body, right? This, this, this intense feeling of like something bad might potentially happen. Like it's just a lot of energy and you're channeling that energy into like a workout, for example, or into a walk in the park or, or into just your artistic expression of painting or spoken word or poetry or anything. When you do some simple things like that, what you're allowing yourself to do is releasing some of that tension that's being built up. Right. And then you have the other additional layers of support such just, you know, maybe speaking to uh, a counselor if that's what you need or speaking to a family member or speaking to a support system. Um, but when you talk about the racialized experience, the stigma of reaching out for help exists. Right. So not only uh, you might stay with what is happening to you and not have a place to share that, um, you might not even have access to the resources such as financial, uh, you know, if you're living in low income to be able to seek like a community center program or to seek out a, a support, uh, you know, through those means. So, you, so everything just stays with an individual. And, and, you know, that's where loneliness, isolation, alienation really starts to kick in. So, so the support system has to be multi-layered. Um, and, and I think everybody needs to recognize within, you know, the society and community that it's not just, you know, someone's experiencing depression to so go speak to a counselor. Like it's, it's not, it's not an easy solution like that. You need a much more holistic approach to be able to provide that support to that individual. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think, you know, uh, we support a lot of food security uh, programs at the United Way. And one of the, you know, in before COVID, a lot of our sort of, uh, you know, food banks that were providing meals, physical sort of sustenance for the bodies. I mean, really a big part of their benefit was the congregate dining when people would come together, eat and break bread together and build community and the kind of mental health sort of supports and and feeling of belonging that occurred as a, as a result of that were almost as important, if not more important than the actual meals that were being eaten. And since COVID hit, a lot of those programs have had to close down, right? They've had to really shift to a, a delivery model or sort of essentially a curbside pickup. And mm-hmm. and I think, you know, how much that's going to, you know, how we're going to see that kind of manifest in this kind of shadow pandemic 
you know, a year down the road when when people's coping strategies that they used to have, right, the ways that they used to channel their anxiety and all these and their stresses really have been kind of taken away from them, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I in my work as a community development specialist, I'm at a food bank two to three times a month, right? And just uh, just the ability to to even just witness to what you're speaking, it's, it's absolutely true that um, there is a sense of community, even in sometimes spaces that we don't expect, you know, a feeling of community to exist, um, which speaks to the resiliency of, of people in vulnerable positions, right? That um, provided that they can come together, they have the opportunity to build a sense of community, it can exist. And it actually is, 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 is a point to, to, you know, to people in positions of power and privilege that it doesn't take much to create a sense of community. Yeah. And it doesn't take much to be able to support individuals who are experiencing, uh, you know, any kind of mental health challenges. You don't have to be the expert. You just have to provide opportunities. If it's just as simple as belonging, you know, that can, that can be a great coping strategy. And so that's you doing your part. And then you have, you know, specialized supports like counselors and therapists and organizations that are out there that can take care of the anxiety and the depression. But you can at least make a person be able to cope better with what it is that they're experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, could you tell us a little bit about your uh, role in community development with the town of Oakville? I know you uh, you do you work uh, that sort of you know your day job. That's right. Yes. Um, yeah. So you know, part of my my role, I, I got um, it was in 2016 actually that I uh, got the role for the community development specialist. And uh, at that time, in the in the recreation and culture department, they, this position didn't exist, right? So me along with my coworker Daniel, who I think you you know, Mike. Um, yes. We yes. Uh, we we sort of um, we spearheaded the community development team um, in in the rec and culture department, and and our main overarching overarching pers- uh, goal was to increase access uh, for residents and to enhance the capacity uh, of our community partners. Um, and so that broad objective, you know, helped us really, uh, it kind of gave us the freedom to sort of take it to where we wanted it to, to be. And one of the first things we recognize is that we really need to know what Oakville is, right? And, and maybe not, it's not everything that the stereotype promotes Oakville to be. Um, Oakville is certainly a very affluent community. Uh, that is, there's no doubt about that. But Oakville still has, you know, poverty. Uh, and I know in 2016, the low-income measure, you know, through that measure, 9.1% of all Oakville residents uh, were considered low-income. Uh, and in an affluent community, you know, being low-income is, is not the same as another community, right? So yeah. the, the disparity of income is quite vast between individuals who have and individuals who don't. Um, and that impacts the lives of their families, that impacts the lives of their children, Um, So part of my job and my responsibility is really to understand the needs of the community as it relates to, you know, their recreation, their culture needs and what they want from a community center and try to figure out how can we in our capacity be able to provide that support. So in line with just like what we're talking about, the mental health challenges, there is a role for a community center to play, you know, just by simply offering a fitness class or a yoga class or a children's camp. Like there's a role to play for a per, an individual's you know, well-being. And so my job really is to developing a framework uh, to be able to provide that level of support and eliminate the barriers that prevent people from accessing those supports, right? So you can create a great program, um, but if you put a fee to that that people can't pay, then you know that great program is not addressing the needs for which you developed it. So we try to get grant funding to be able to provide programming. Um, we try to open up uh, opportunities where people can apply for, you know, subsidy programs um, and, and and eliminate the barriers that kind of prevents them from even accessing them uh, or qualifying for them. Um, and then we just try to make sure that the programs that we are offering toward the community is also representative of the community itself, right? Uh, Oakville is a growing community and, and with the growth, there's communities from all over the world coming in and and, and living in Oakville. Um, And so our programming has to reflect that the diversity of the community we serve. And so it's just making sure that we have a contact with the community so that we can listen to their needs and then be able to provide programming that address it. Yeah, absolutely. That's, um, you know, it's really, I think, a unique kind of role within a recreation department that I think, um, you know, I, as you said, I know Daniel and I know a little bit about the work that you guys do in there. And I think it's really important for, um, you know, for governments to recognize the sort of 
I guess, uh, you know, these kind of tertiary impacts that we don't often associate, right? You think about recreation and you don't immediately think about sort of mental health benefits or, or, or even some of these issues around racialized access to, to programming and what that might do. And, you know, I think um, I remember watching your TEDx talk and you were, you were talking about sort of hockey, right? And, uh-huh. and I, rem- I just remember very vividly, you know, we grew up, we didn't have a lot of money. And so like the thought of, or the, to be able to access some of the programming, especially something like, like hockey, the sort of quintessential Canadian sport, it, it just was impossible. Like my parents mm-hmm. could not, like there was just no way they could pay for that, right? Yeah, I mean the, the the barriers to even something as simple as sports, right? Like, uh, um, oh, yeah. my my it's funny because my my brother actually he played a year of hockey and it was like so expensive that like you just couldn't <laughs> couldn't afford yeah. it anymore. And I um, yeah. I actually used to play baseball and I played at a quite uh, quite a high level. Um, and so um, at the age of 16, like I had to make a choice between like should I? And my parents were very supportive in me continuing to play baseball. Um, but I had to make a choice between continuing that because it was only going to get more expensive. Like the more, yeah. uh, you know, the more higher up you go and, you know, you, you play, you could potentially play for the, pro, you know, you can play provincial. I was already playing at a rep level. Um, so I had to make a decision to be like, should I play baseball or should I work at Tim Hortons? And I literally worked at Tim Hortons, um, mm-hmm. which, which I don't regret. Uh, but, uh, but the idea is that, you know, those choices impacts a person's well-being. Like, you know, if I still stayed, what if, what if I didn't stop? playing yeah. baseball what could have happened right like like i've processed that for myself and I've, I'm, I'm at peace with the decisions that i made even if i wasn't ready to make that decision back then um but you know to, to people's mental health and i think this is what i think many people don't understand is that just because i was able to process that doesn't mean somebody else will and that somebody else should right um and 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 that's exactly what you know the ability to empathize with other people you know in my practice i always look at the the decisions and choices that people make to end up to be where they're at not from a lens of judgment, right? It's from the lens of trying to understand their experiences. And if I were to do something differently, that doesn't make me right and them wrong. It just means that they didn't, might not have the support, the resiliency, or just the, or, or even sometimes the skill set that they can now utilize to process that information better and to improve their life. Um, I think the stigma around mental health truly exists when people themselves look at them uh, as as being either weak or not being able to to yeah. cope with what's happening and that is just not true that is like literally not true and as long as we hold on to that belief we're eliminating a support system such as counseling such as therapy that can be so productive to a person's life and that can just eliminate and alleviate a lot of the challenges that they experience right so just similar to how i processed working at tim hortons and playing baseball you know that was might have been an easy choice for other people it could have been you know like a choice of like how they choose to define themselves right whether they want to hold on to their religion or not whether they want to hold on to their culture or language or not these are much more difficult choices than the one i made but all i'm simply saying is that you know in mental health this thing there's not a right or wrong choice it's just the ability for us to understand each other and understand the choices that you know they themselves have made yeah no absolutely and i think you know we definitely at united way we've it's a big priority area for us around support supporting mental health programming you know we support canadian mental health association both in halton and hamilton as well as other local organizations that support sort of newcomers such as halton multicultural council and milton community resource center so you know we absolutely understand the issues uh, that a lot of these agencies face when they try to work and support with um, with with some more marginalized folks, and especially you know when you talk about sort of some of the language barriers that might uh, that might be there, the cultural barriers, the sort of experience of these pieces. I'm wondering if you could if you could speak you know briefly to what do you think are some of the most press, pressing and challenging issues for Black and Indigenous people and people of color in Halton community? Like what are some examples of the work and, and potential maybe you know some examples of some work being done to better support those racialized communities either locally uh, within sort of mental health supports or or beyond? I know you're very connected to to that work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the first thing I, I do want to say is that I cannot and I and I should not be able to speak on behalf of like the indigenous or, or mm-hmm. the black community or even people mm-hmm. of color in general, right? So anything I share yeah. here is is my understanding of what um, I think is happening um, and, and maybe provide some sort of insight to that. So I think, you know, in, in Oak, I can speak to in Oakville, right? We have um, the indigenous community that are that is about uh, less or just about 2% of our of our um, population and I think the the black community is in around less than five percent or about five percent of mm-hmm. uh, or I think around three percent in Oakville and five percent in Halton um, so 
you know, one of the first things we need to understand is that that might not be the same type of representation that you might have in other, you know, neighboring municipalities or communities. Um, but that does not mean that we have to not be as intentional to provide the right type of support and programming um, for those communities so that they're visible uh, and that their needs are heard and that their needs are actioned, right? Um, there's a great... Uh, it's a great book, actually, or, or, or an article. Um, I don't know if you had a chance to read it, Mike. It's, it's called Growing Up Black in Oakville. Um, it was written in the early 2000s. No, I haven't um, read Yeah, and it you know it speaks to a per, it speaks to a person's experience of, uh, of of what it was like to grow up black. And and you know I can't say I recall everything about that book, but something that stood out to me was how the the challenge of that young person going through high school was just that the way they were perceived, right? So they were like, it's tokenizing sometimes, right? Like they were the yeah. token of black person and, and hence they had to fit a certain stereotype that they themselves didn't see fitting, right? That's not who mm -hmm. they might be. That's how others perceive them as. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges, at least from my personal insight. And again, I'm not speaking on behalf of those communities. One of the things that happens in a community that doesn't have a large representation is that people begin to get tokenized. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a, there's a there's a huge conversation around, you know, when we do land acknowledgement and I'm a big proponent of doing uh, land acknowledgements before we begin. But how much of that land acknowledgement can potentially be tokenizing if it's not, you know, fueled or, or if there are no next steps to that land acknowledgement. Right. Um, how much do I personally as a person, as a, you know, I'm, I'm an immigrant, I'm coming to this land that's not mine. How much do I put it on myself to know and learn about indigenous history? Right. How much do I is that part of my collective identity and my solidarity and allyship with the indigenous community? Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's the same with, with, the, with the black community, right? Like what happened with George Floyd, what's, what's continuously happening in the States and also what's happening in Canada. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's not new to the communities who have experienced those challenges, right? And so the idea is that things become sensationalized and then they die down, but the experiences of people don't change. And so for, for the black and indigenous community, what I would say is that I'm an ally, I'm here to learn, I'm here to give voice to them to be able to is their needs and and in my role as a community development specialist in my role mm -hmm. as a social worker you know it's up to me to figure out well how can I provide that layer of support how can I help champion that voice uh, and and I think we have to be intentional because if we don't have a, a a significant population of those communities that doesn't mean that there's no issues here it just means that we have to be we have to make their voices louder because it exists right and and we can't hide them. Uh, and saying that, you know, we we're, we don't have the same issues as, you know, what you might see in the states or in other uh, neighboring municipalities, because it's not up to make, it's not up to us to make that decision, right? It's up to the voices of those communities to speak up and let us know what they need and figure out how it is that we can provide that support. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also to ask questions like, why is that the case, right? Why do neighboring communities have, you know, higher percentages and why is it not representative and how sort of income plays into that as well, right? And how we see, you know, like, as you said, it's it's a very expensive community to live in, in Oakville, right? And housing prices are very high. And so what does that do to sort of um, keep people out physically in a lot of of ways right and 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 sort of not allow people to live in the communities that they might want to yeah you know it's really interesting stat uh, is that 80 percent of indigenous children in toronto are are living in low-income neighborhoods like that's mm. like I, I don't like if we, if yeah. i just try to contextualize what that even means like mm. that is that is that is so wrong like i don't even know how to otherwise put it yeah. right like 80 percent um and, and, and that's Toronto, that's like half an hour away from us, right? Um, depending on obviously the, the QEW and the gardener, but, yeah. but the idea is that it's not far away. And so uh, just because we don't have a large enough population, um, to me, this is like, this is what I, I find optimistic about living in Halton and in Oakville in particular, is that because we're an affluent community, and I truly believe within our community, we have people who have, the, you know, the willingness and the desire and even in leadership to be able to truly make uh, mm -hmm. changes. And, and we're at a privileged position where we actually have the resources to address the problems that we collectively as a community face. So if that's anti-Black racism, we have the resources to address it. If it's Indigenous, you know, Indigenous history not being told through the lens of indigeneity and, and, and Indigenous peoples, we have the resources to change it. Right. If it's people of color being marginalized and overrepresented in, in, in low income 
then, you know, we have the ability to change it and yeah. just shift the needle in a positive direction, right? And so if we have the resources, it actually is more imperative on us to do so, right? Because we have no excuse. Uh, it's just a matter of identification. It's a matter of giving voice to the communities who, who need it. And it's about us listening and then figuring out a framework to go ahead. And, you know, just even if you shift the needle a little bit, you're shifting it towards a direction that can help solve those issues and challenges that people of color, indigenous communities and, and the black community experiences. Yeah, that's um perfect segue. So I often end a lot of my podcasts with the sort of same question around uh, a, sort of a magic wand. And so what I'm wondering is if you had a magic wand or an unlimited budget, what would you do to our to improve our community and why? If I had a magic wand um, or unlimited budget. <laughs> yes, I think sometimes they tend to be the same thing for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. What would I do to improve? You know, I, I go back to voices um, yeah. because I think I would I would if with, them, with my magic wand. I would just give voices to the marginalized um, because I truly believe that the people who have been marginalized, whether that's because of low income, whether that's because of, you know, systemic barriers and racism, um, it's, it's, their voices are so powerful, but because they're not in positions of privilege and power, they never have the opportunity to share it. Mm -hmm. um, I've had the privilege of listening to, to marginalized voices and I can't tell you how, impactful that is because sometimes it's a lens that I've never explored um, and and I often sh you know share this to people that if we just listen and if we just give voice right true voice to be like don't like you're not hurting anybody's feelings just stand up and speak your experience I think we can learn so much and I think we can do so much more if we just give voices to people and communities that haven't had it uh, and, and to be honest with you, it doesn't sound like it's too much to ask, but it rarely ever happens. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I really like that idea. And I think, you know, I, if I could add something to it, I would say and and the ability to act on those things. Mm -hmm. Right. Or the, the sort of because uh, I think you're you're uh, you're so right about the importance of centering those voices. And it's certainly something that, you know, as an organization, we're, we're trying to do more of in terms of um, encouraging co-design, really listening to people with lived experience, putting them at the very center of, of how programs are sort of developed and the kind of capacity building that we do in the sector and sort of, you know, trying to center that as much as possible, because you're right, those voices are not respected. I love that you use the word, it's a privilege to listen to those voices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just, you know, I think it's the, 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 the notion that, you know, to your point where when we have to act, um, sometimes we're petrified to act, so we don't want to listen, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and we've, we've sometimes I think institutionally, systemically made it a point to to tokenize the consultation process, to tokenize yes. um, the engagement process. But but that doesn't mean that we can't change it. Right. So just with the magic wand, change that. Right. Um, I know that is it the Tamarack Institute. They have a model of engagement that goes from, you know, uh, you inform, you consult, you involve uh, and then you collaborate and then you empower. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you empower people, you give them power. Right? You, you, yeah. the power, the power shifts from institution to people, uh, and that traditionally has not happened. And and sometimes I think we're scared of that. Uh, but you know, there's all these great success stories where when power is provided to people, that beautiful things happen. Um, so we don't, you know, we it's okay to be scared of it, but that being scared of it is not a reason not to do it. Um, so I think you know, with with you know, with the wonderful work that United Way is doing. Um, the town and all the wonderful community partners. I think, you know, one of the things that I really want to focus in on is just the ability to listen uh, and not be afraid of what's actually going to be set back, right? Uh, because sometimes that fear prevents us from, from engaging in a much more uh, true engagement process. Yeah. Well, and, and to go off of what you said, to empower doesn't mean taking away power. It, uh, you know, it's not a zero sum game. I think if we do it right, that it, it ends up being, uh, you know, we end up increasing the amount of sort of power by spreading that out, by reducing those barriers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's and it's the process by which you you recognize that in a in a space in a decision making process, the voice of the community, when channeled accurately and and when it's representative of what the community truly seeks, you're right. Like it just makes things easier, right? It's actually a much mm -hmm. more efficient process. Um, 
but it's 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 up to us to sort of initiate that um and, and i think the community will respond right well thank you so much for um for taking this time and speaking with us it's been a true pleasure and uh and i look you know i look forward to hearing more about the good work that you do in the community yeah likewise mike this was this was fantastic and i know that united way and yourself you guys are doing some some fantastic uh, work in the community, no doubt. And I look forward to to you know meeting you in person one day when the uh, you know when it's safe to do so. One day, eh? <laughs> yeah. Let's continue to bring the unignorable issues affecting our community to the forefront. I would like to thank all of our guests and dedicated listeners. This podcast was brought to you by United Way Halton and Hamilton. Stay social with us and keep the conversation going by following us at United Way HH on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and United Way Halton and Hamilton on LinkedIn and YouTube. Turn it up, hallelujah It's gonna get much brighter